You're listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church, a relevant biblical community. For more information, visit houstonsfirst.org. Houston's First, it's a real privilege to be with you this evening as we meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If you brought your Bibles with you, you can turn to the book of Hebrews. We'll be referencing the book of Hebrews this evening. As you're turning there, uh, I want to tell you a story about your pastor. And I'm going to confess right now, I did not tell Greg I was going to tell this story. I did not ask Greg's permission to tell this story. Uh, One of the great things about being friends for decades is he's going to feel obligated to forgive me no matter what I say. So uh, here we go. Here we go. Um, If you've been around Greg at all, you probably even, you've sensed, if you don't know him personally, even through his sermons, but if you know him personally, you know Greg does uh, kind of everything on purpose. Greg lives his life very, very, very intentionally. He's intentional about uh, his marriage. He's intentional about his parenting. He's intentional about his workouts. He's intentional about his time with Jesus. He's intentional about his job. He's really intentional about everything. And one of the things specifically that I've always admired about Greg is the way that he's intentional about his balancing work and rest and play and keeping all of these things kind of continuously in balance. And uh, I'm not always good at that. Uh, Particularly, I can just get in the cycle where I'm just working, working, working. And through the years, Greg has... Uh, tried to hold me accountable just to stop and rest and be with Jesus. And one of the ways he's held me accountable for that is he challenges me. uh, Every month he sets aside, puts it on his calendar, a day with the Father. And he's challenged me. He says, Brian, do you have the day with the Father on your calendar? And if the answer is no, he says, so stop right now and put it on your calendar. And there have been times through our relationship he said, you know, why don't you just come with me as I spend my day with the Father? And so I remember one of the first times he invited me to do that, we went down uh, to a ranch. I think it was owned by a member of, of Houston's First, not too far outside of Houston. We went to the ranch together. And as we got to the ranch, he said, you know, before we start our day with the father, you want to play a little bit? I said, sure, let's play. He goes, look, there's a couple of four-wheelers. So I'm like, all right, let's get on the four-wheeler. So Greg gets on one four-wheeler and I get on one four-wheeler, right? And we just start tearing around. We're tearing around the roads. We're going every which way like this. And all of a sudden, Greg just pulls off the road and he starts tearing through this field and he's got the throttle wide open and he turns behind and goes, oh yeah, right? And he's just, woo, just having this great time and he's flying through the field and about 300 yards behind him and Greg's just going, going and all of a sudden, the front of Greg's four-wheeler drops into a hole, the back comes straight up and I see Greg hurtling through the air. I mean, he's completely airborne. He does a complete flip hits the ground, and I'm thinking, Greg Mott's dead. I, I, I you know, what, what will I tell Kelly? Uh, there's no cell phone coverage out here. How will I get him in the car? I can't get an ambulance or he's going to be paralyzed or in an excruciating pain. What do I do? And then I see Greg just kind of rise up, and he, he's, he's like, you know, he's checking. I see him checking his bones, and he goes, yes! Perfect dismount. (laughs) Gets back on the four-wheeler and takes off. And I thought, you know, um, why did Greg receive deliverance from God (laughs) in that moment? I I don't know. Why why did God deliver Greg from death, from paralysis, from certain injury and excruciating pain in that moment? I don't know. But, you know, sometimes God does deliver us, doesn't he? 
Sometimes he intervenes dramatically, miraculously in our lives, and he just rescues us, sometimes even from our own foolishness or from life in a broken world. He just rescues us and he delivers us, but then sometimes he doesn't, does he? And in those moments where God doesn't deliver us, I find a lot of comfort from the fact that God didn't deliver his son. When Jesus was in the garden and he was on his knees before the Father and the sweat was coming down like drops of blood and he said, Father, will you deliver me from this moment? Will you cause this cup to pass from me? Will you allow me to avoid the physical suffering and the separation from you spiritually? Will you allow that? And the Father said to him, no. You have to go to the cross. And Jesus was willing And no one took his life from him. He chose to go, but the father told him no. There is no other way than for you to suffer. And of course, we know the end of the story, but tonight what we're doing is we're forcing ourselves just to stop, just to pause and and linger at the cross and meditate together on the suffering of our Savior that accomplished our salvation and the removal of our debt of sin. We just want to stop in this moment and remember Christ's suffering. So I'd like you to listen for just a moment. I'm going to read to you uh, a couple of the brief gospel accounts of what happened to Jesus about 2,000 years ago. First from the Gospel of John, chapter 19. It says, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Then from Matthew chapter 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spat on him, and they took a reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him and took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him, then they led him away to crucify him. Sometimes we're delivered and sometimes we're not delivered. Have you ever experienced pain? I mean, like excruciating pain. Or one time I slammed my finger in the car door. That was pretty painful. Another time I was skiing. I broke my leg skiing. That was pretty painful. Uh, maybe the worst time was I was mowing the lawn. I got hit in the eye with a stick, which, you know, we'd think, well, that's just a tiny little organ in the body. But, man, that just hurts so bad. But excruciating pain, I'm going to argue that none of us have actually literally experienced ever excruciating pain. Because the word excruciating is a Latin word, root word. It means out of the cross. It's a word that was invented by the Romans to describe the pain of crucifixion, excruciating, the pain that comes out of the cross. The Romans actually didn't invent crucifixion. It was the Persians, and then the Carthaginians used it, and then the Seleucids used it as well, but the Romans really perfected it. It was a a form of capital punishment that they reserved for the absolute worst criminals and foreigners. And their intention wasn't just to put someone to death, but to prolong their suffering 
and to utterly humiliate them in the process of their dying. So Jesus experienced excruciating pain on our behalf. Cross was laid across, the beam was laid across his shoulders after he had been beaten to within an inch of his life. After his back had been shredded by scourging and he had bled profusely. He picked up his own cross and carried it, but he was at that point too weak and someone had to be pulled in, a passerby, to help him carry his own cross, the sentence of death. When he picked it up, there was no turning back. And he walked struggling with help to Golgotha, the place of crucifixion, and then spikes were driven through his wrists, not through his hands as we often see visualized because then the spike would have torn through the hand. It was through the wrist. And he laid on the crossbeam and they drove the spikes through his wrists and then they mounted his feet on the vertical beam and they pounded the spikes through his feet and then they picked the whole thing up and dropped it into the hole so it would pull on his wrists and it would press on his feet. But the spikes were in these locations so that Jesus could pull himself up periodically and catch a breath. Because ultimately, the way that a person died on a cross was because they could breathe no longer. Their diaphragms being pressed as they sink lower and lower in their fatigue. And then they pull up to catch a breath and slump down again. And after hours and sometimes days, the fatigue was just too great and they couldn't pull up any longer. And those who passed by would observe the one crucified stripped naked and they would throw stones at them and spit at them. Utter humiliation, excruciating pain. And that's what Jesus experienced for us. Suffering for us. But I've often literally wondered why did Jesus actually have to suffer? Think about this for a moment. Why why didn't the conversation between the Son of God and his Father go like this? Father, if you can cause this cup to pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And what if the Father had said, you know what, sorry, the answer is no, you you have to die, but I'm going to make it quick. Why can't you just go, yep, it's going to be quick, it's going to be painless, we're going to do it in private, you're going to be walking through the marketplace, somebody's just going to, you know, stabbing the back, be good. We'll just get it over with really quickly. Why did it have to be so public, so much humiliation, so much pain, so much suffering? The answer is because our sin causes pain. Our sin causes God pain. John chapter 11, you know, there's a couple verses that I'm sure all of us have memorized because uh, it's, uh, you know, short and we want to kind of rack up a few memory verses. Jesus wept, right? John 11, you've memorized Jesus wept, which also is created a little consternation for me because I think, remember the story in John 11 is that uh, Lazarus has died, uh, but when Jesus was told that Lazarus was sick, he actually waited for Lazarus to die. So Jesus was uh, back at the Jordan. He had left Jerusalem. His friend Lazarus lived in a nearby city. He was sick. Word came to Jesus, and Jesus delayed his departure by two days so that Lazarus could die, and then it was a four-day journey, so by the time Jesus actually got 
back to Bethany, Lazarus had been in the tomb four days, and this was really, really important that he was in the tomb four days. Because in Jewish thought, at that point in time, after a day, the person wasn't really dead. Their soul might be hovering around and they might come back. Two days, uh, possibly three days, unlikely. Four days, dead, dead, right? Completely dead. So when Jesus came back, Lazarus is completely dead. But Jesus knew that. He, he intentionally allowed Lazarus to die because he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So when he comes to the tomb and everyone's weeping, why did Jesus weep if he knew in just like mere moments he was going to have the stone rolled back he was going to say Lazarus come forth everybody's going to freak out they've already got food for the funeral let's make it a party everybody the the sorrow is going to be turned to joy why did Jesus weep if he he knew he was going to complete create this complete reversal of their grief and turn it into joy it's because sin causes pain and sin causes suffering And as he entered into this moment, and he saw the devastation that sin and the devil and suffering had brought into the life of this family that he deeply loved, and as he probably even anticipated his own suffering, he wept and we're told it was those tears that are just heavy, deep, uncomfortable sobs that in our culture make everyone feel really uncomfortable. Jesus wept. Because sin causes pain. Sin causes suffering. So Jesus suffered on our behalf so that he could remove the debt of our sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, if you have your Bibles with you, or it'll be up here on the screen, reads like this. According to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. What the author of the Hebrews is saying is this, uh, forgiveness is costly. It costs blood. Forgiveness is costly. In the Greek language, uh, there are actually multiple words for forgiveness, but two of the primary ones in the New Testament uh, refer to two kind of related uh, but different concepts. One is uh, the release of the debt, and the second is the bestowal of grace. Okay, to be forgiven means to be released of the debt, To be forgiven also means to have grace bestowed upon you, but grace can't be bestowed upon you until the debt is released. Once the debt is released, that's the negative. The positive is grace can be bestowed on you. That's forgiveness. And forgiveness is costly because when there's an offense, there's a debt. And the debt can't simply be ignored or waved away. Someone has to pay the debt. So if I owe my friend Greg 20 bucks... I can say, well, Greg, it's just 20 bucks. It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Well, then Greg absorbs the debt, right? Somebody has to absorb the debt. If I don't pay Greg back for the debt, he has to absorb it himself. I say, hey, Greg, I'm sorry. Uh, I really appreciate you loaning me your Jeep. I wrecked your Jeep, but don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Well, the Jeep's still wrecked, and somebody's got to pay to get the Jeep fixed. Greg, I'm really sorry. I, I burned down your house. (laughs) but it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. House has to be rebuilt. Creator of the universe, I've violated your perfect holiness, but it's, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. You can't pretend debt away. You can't ignore debt. The debt has to be paid. 
And that's the whole foundation of the sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament. If a worshiper wanted to approach God, he had to pay the debt that was owed. Right? There's a debt that creates a separation between God and people. If you think back all the way to the book of Genesis chapter three, the first sin, remember when Adam and Eve first sinned, uh, they, they experienced shame and guilt, so what did they do? Right, they covered themselves over with fig leaves, you remember that? But then before God sent them out of the garden, they had different clothing. They were clothed with the skins of animals. So what happened behind the scenes? God put to death an animal, right? There was, there was a life that was sacrificed, a substitute. That was, that was how the sacrificial system worked. If you wanted to come into the presence of God and you had a debt to, to pay, the, the, the price was your life. Right? The wages of sin is death. You had to pay with your life, or you could pay with a substitute offering. But there had to be life for life. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3 and four, read like this. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what was the point of the sacrificial system? Well, the point of the sacrificial system was a foreshadowing of the need for a better sacrifice. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats can't take away human sins. It's not an appropriate sacrifice, bull for person. Bulls don't have the same value as people who are made in the image of God. It's not an appropriate sacrifice. Bulls and goats and birds, it's also not a sacrifice that's valuable enough because they're not morally perfect. They can't take away the debt of our sins. So what do they do? Well, they, they give us a foreshadowing of our need for a better sacrifice and they temporarily set aside the punishment for our sins. The offer, offering is made, the worshiper comes, he's, he has a debt and so a substitute offering is made but it's just temporary and has to be made time after time after time after time. And in fact, every time the worshiper comes and makes the offering, he's actually being reminded of the fact that he's still a sinner and he still has a debt to be paid before the Lord. And the debt cannot be removed by the blood of bulls and goats. It can be temporarily set aside or atoned for, which means to cover over. So listen to this description of what happened uh, in the tabernacle on uh, the Day of Atonement. This is from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. It says, Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat but of those things, we can't speak in complete detail now. But the author's saying there's a lot of significance in this. Because remember, when Moses went up on the mountain, God said, I want to show you something, Moses. I want to give you a vision of what it's like in my house. This is what it looks like in my home. And what I want you to do is I'm going to give you some, some materials and dimensions, and I want you to go back down to the valley, and I want you to make a copy of that. Right? It's, it's going to be called a tabernacle, but it's going to be a model of my home. It's going to be a model of my throne room. And the Holy of Holies, that will be where I sit. 
The Ark of the Covenant, that's, that's going to be my actual throne. So you remember in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah is given this vision of the throne room of God? What do you see there? You see cherubim. Right? You see guardians of the holiness of God all around the throne of God. And so what happened on the, on the mercy seat or the Ark of the Covenant? There were cherubim. It's a figure. It's a picture of what it was actually like in God's throne room. So God was saying, now I want you to imagine when you come behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, you're actually entering into my presence. But one priest gets to go in there one time a year. And what he does is he he comes before God. And he's making a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And the the imagery is this, that the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is God's throne. He's sitting there and he's guarded by the cherubim and their their holiness He's protecting his holiness. And as he sits on the seat of the Ark of the Covenant, he looks down into the Ark and he sees three things. He sees three things. He sees a golden jar holding the manna. He sees Aaron's rod which had budded. And he sees the tables of the covenant. So what he sees is three reminders of his people's sin. He sees manna. What's that remind him of? (laughs) They're complaining and his provision, right? And their distrust of God. Have you brought us out into the wilderness to die? Maybe we should just go back to Egypt. They're complaining and they're bitter and they're frustrated and yet God provided for them in his grace. He sees Aaron's rod that budded. What does that remind them of? The rebellion against Aaron and Moses' authority. Rebellion. What's the third thing they see? The tables of the covenant. When Moses came down with the tablets the first time, what did he have to do with them? He shattered them. Because they'd already made a golden calf and said, this is our God who will take us back to Egypt. (laughs) Let's worship him. So he's sitting on the mercy seat, which is his throne room. He's guarded in his holiness by the cherubim. And he's reminded as he looks into the ark that the people have sinned. They've broken his moral law. They've violated his, his perfect holiness. And so once a year, the high priest takes the blood of a bull and he, he goes behind the veil and he spreads blood over the mercy seat. So now as God sits on his throne, instead of being reminded of his people's sin, he sees the blood of a sacrifice covering over, literally atoning for, the sin of his people. And so they can live another year because a substitute offering has been made. But what's the problem? The blood of a bull goes dry. It flakes off. It has to be reapplied year after year after year after year. There's a reminder. And so what we're told in the book of Hebrews is all that prefigured for us, our need for a better sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice of of a, a person for men and women made in the image of God, a morally perfect sacrifice that would be valuable enough for God to say that's good enough for all sins, for all people, for all time. That's only a sacrifice that can be accomplished by me, I'll give you my son. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. says, by this will, that is uh, God's will, God's design, we have been sanctified or we have been set apart unto God through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. F ha pox, one sacrifice for all sins, for all times. Because it's appropriate It's a man for men and women made in the image of God. It's a perfect man because he is the son of God. So his one sacrifice applies for all sins, all people, all time, forever. There is no other sacrifice that has to be made other than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And how do we enjoy that? 
by just saying yes. We, we, we don't earn that. We don't deserve it. Why don't you just listen to these words from Hebrews 10, verse 19. The writer says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, it's not just one high priest once a year. It's absolutely every single one of us who have said yes to Jesus. We can rush boldly and confidently, humbly, into the very throne room of God, knowing that the blood of Jesus has inaugurated a new and a living way. His blood is always fresh for us. It's always living for us. It doesn't grow old. It doesn't need to be a sacrifice that needs to be made time after time after time because our debt is completely paid. And all that we do is we say yes. In fact, that's the only thing that we can do is to say yes because we don't have a a sacrifice of infinite value to give to God. There's nothing that we possess that measures up to the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us. So we humbly just, we say thank you. And we receive the gift by faith. So I wonder, have you ever um, just wondered to yourself, does my life really matter? Do you ever wrestle with that at all? Am I important? Does my life matter? Do I have value? Do you ever wrestle with that at all? How do you answer that question? Kind of dig deep inside and think about your gifts and your talents, your abilities, the things you can contribute to the world. How, how do you find, how do you figure out, do I actually have value? And then you have really good days. You go, yeah, I've got a lot of value. I'm making a mark in the world. Then you have days where you're really struggling. I don't know. I don't know if I have value. How do you, how do you answer that question? Well, I'm sorry, you can't actually answer it for yourself, but the creator of the universe has said you have value. What is it that is most valuable? I'm saying this in absolute terms. In absolute terms, what is the one thing that has most value? I would argue it's this. It is the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit the relationship of love that existed for all of eternity in the past will exist for all of eternity future. The loving relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, that is the most valuable thing that exists. There's nothing more valuable, nothing that God, in a sense, values more. And yet God said this, he said, you know what? I value each of you so much that I'm willing to sacrifice this. I'm willing for there to be a a, a fracturing in the Godhead between Father, Son, and Spirit, as Jesus hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a fracturing in the Godhead. And God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit all agreed and said, you are that valuable. You are valuable enough that God is willing to surrender what he valued most so that you could be reconciled to him. Does your life have value? Your life has infinite value to God. And God is the only one who has the right and the authority to declare your value. And God is the only one who has the wisdom to know what you are actually worth. And he says, you're worth the life of my son. 
life for a life. I'll give the life of my son to remove your debt of sin so you can be reconciled in a relationship with me. That's how valuable you are, and that's how much I love you. And we take moments like this so we can just say, God, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Would you bow with me? Maybe you came in here this evening and you're not sure if your debt of sin has been removed. Maybe you're not sure who will pay it and you wonder if it's you yourself because that sin creates separation between you and God. And maybe tonight um, God is speaking to you and he's making it clear to you that you're valuable to him and that he loves you so much that he was willing to sacrifice his son. I want to encourage you in this moment your head is bowed, just to cry out to God. You can do it out loud if you'd like. You can do it silently. God is everywhere and hears all things. And just say, God, thank you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to pay the debt of my sin. Jesus, thank you for being willing to let the Father say no to you and not rescue you and deliver you from the suffering of the cross. Thank you. The moment that you say thank you, your debt of sin is removed completely and you have life that lasts forever. You have eternal life. So if that's you this this evening, let me encourage you just to take a moment right now, right where you're sitting, and tell God, thank you. I accept, I receive, I believe in Jesus. If you've already believed in Jesus, I want you to take a few moments quietly and just tell Jesus, thank you again. Thank you for, for the extent, the depth of your suffering, the will, your willingness to, to experience excruciating pain caused by my sin. Thank you. Just take a few moments silently and tell Jesus, thank you. Father, thank you for your willingness to send your son. Father, spirit, son, thank you for your willingness to experience a a rupture, a fracturing in the perfect fellowship and communion that you had experienced for all of eternity. Thank you. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to experience excruciating pain on our behalf as a result of our sin. Thank you for paying the debt we owe that we could not pay, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your suffering. Thank you for paying for our sin. In the name of Jesus, we give you thanks. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church. We invite you to worship with us at one of our four locations, at The Loop, Cypress, Downtown, or Siena. Follow us on social media or visit us online at houstonsfirst.org.